This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Clarissa Eck. Clarissa Eck is a potter creating hand-carved illustrated mugs, planters, and altar plates, which call upon animal messengers, ancient plant knowledge, and hermetic symbolism to stir the depths of the spirit. I am lucky enough to own some pieces by Clarissa, and they are stunning. Every piece of pottery she creates is a spell, a gentle reminder of those in-between moments that make life rich with wonder and mystery. Find her work at Clarissa Eck on Instagram or at www.clarissa-eck.com, and Eck is spelled E-C-K. That's at Clarissa Eck or www.clarissa-eck.com. Exciting news! The Modern Witches Confluence is meeting virtually for its third annual gathering from October 29th through November 1st to celebrate the diverse ways of the modern witch. Now, I was at the Modern Witches Confluence in person in San Francisco last year, and it was truly one of the best witchcraft festivals I've ever been to, so I'm so thrilled that they're taking it online this year. Now, you can join them from anywhere in the world for witchy workshops and community spirit from an incredible lineup of teachers, including Aja Dashor, Kira Taborn, Lindsay Mack, Edgar Fabian Frias, Dory Midnight, and many more. This year, the Witches' Confluence is delighted to be offering community reparation tickets, supporting the efforts of cultivating community care and equity. So go ahead and register for the 2020 Witches' Confluence at witchesconfluence.org slash registration. And you can follow along and get to know this community of magical beings on Instagram at witchesconfluence, and you can shop their magical marketplace on Instagram at Modern Witches Marketplace. You're not going to want to miss this one. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to season four of The Witch Wave. Can you believe it? I am so excited about this season and I'm so very grateful to all of you for tuning in and reaching out, especially over these last six incredibly complicated months that we've all been living through. Now, before we start, a couple of quick things to update you on. 
My book, Waking the Witch, comes out in paperback next week on October 6th. And it comes out in Spanish on October 7th, if you were waiting for that. And to celebrate, I've got a whole host of online events happening. On October 5th, I'll be popping into the UK's Cunning Folk Book Club for a live Q&A, which should be loads of fun. And then on October 7th, I'll be in conversation with my dear friend Kristen Soleil about her new book, Witch Hunt, A Traveler's Guide to the Power and Persecution of the Witch, which is so incredibly good. This event will be hosted by The Strand, and I hope you'll join us. And then the next day, on October 8th, I'll be in conversation with the one, the only, Rachel True, star of The Craft, and now author of the True Heart Intuitive Tarot book and deck, and I really can't wait. We're going to talk in more depth about what it was like for her to be one of cinema's most iconic teen witches, and how her magic has evolved since then as an occultist and tarot expert. Please, please, please do get tickets to this one. There are a few options, one of which includes a copy of Waking the Witch, but if you don't need that or already have it or can't swing it right now, that's totally fine, as there's also a ticket level for just the live talk if that's a better fit for you right now. This event is hosted by Murmur and Community Bookstore, and I'm so grateful to them for having us. And you can find more details and tickets for all of these events over at my website, pamgrossman.com, or in my personal Instagram, which is at phantasmophile. There's links in the bio. And I have to say, I'm really thankful to have these events to look forward to, because let's face it, the news has been so incredibly exhausting and relentlessly depressing. I've also been so grateful to witchcraft over these past six months, because the archetype of the witch is one that integrates love and fear, light and shadow, density and subtlety, birth and death and rebirth. Witches teach us that all of these experiences are part of being a sentient creature here on Earth, and that when shit goes down and gets dark and scary and painful... We have the power to use what we learn from being present to those sides of life and can honor the teachings that may dwell in the darkness. And then we can use that energy to transmute ourselves into even stronger, more brightly shining beings as we move forward. And let me be clear, this is not an easy thing to do. It can feel so much more appealing to just be a love and light witch who only wants to be around good vibes and sunny days. Those kinds of folks have been known to freak out or check out whenever darkness falls. 
but they're the ones who actually scare me most of all because they haven't allowed themselves or maybe they haven't been allowed to fully develop, which means their unexamined shadow can cause them to do all sorts of damage to others and to themselves too. As Robert A. Johnson writes in his book, Owning Your Own Shadow, Understanding the Dark Side of the Psyche, quote, The shadow gone autonomous is a terrible monster in our psychic house, unquote. Now, one way that we can stay healthy, potent witches and people in general is to honor the shadow, to look at it, walk through it, and maybe even befriend it. This time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, the nights are beginning to lengthen and the days are growing cooler. We are beginning our descent into darkness and pagan holy days such as Mabin or Autumn Equinox, which just happened, and Samhain or Halloween, which is coming up next month, remind us to honor the bounty and beauty of this shady season. Stories such as Inanna's descent into the underworld or Persephone's abduction by and into Hades are traditionally told during this season, not only as allegories for the longer shadows and colder months, but because they remind us that we too can survive our own personal descents into depression, sickness, confusion, fear, and then emerge out the other side better for it. I think one of the reasons I love stories like Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz is because they also follow the hero's journey, or the heroine's journey, into dark, disconcerting other worlds, which terrify and enchant, and which ultimately fulfill and fortify the protagonist. And that's why I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have artist and author Camille Rose Garcia join me on this season premiere. Her imagery is all about celebrating the dark side of the imagination, as well as the natural and supernatural worlds, and embellishing it all with neon colors and a veil of glitter. Her newest book, The Cabinet of Dr. Decay, which she wrote and illustrated, is a whimsically demented underworld journey of a sort, which is drawn from Camille's real-life fears and fantasies. Even though it's a dark tale, reading this book was such a bright spot for me during this pandemic, thanks to its humor, warped wisdom, and twisted beauty. And, as you are about to hear, talking to Camille about it and the rest of her magical paintings and other creations brought me lots of inspiration and immense joy. But, before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. 
Who is it? Witches. Mary Elizabeth writes, I see and hear a lot about shadow work, but no matter how many times it's explained, I still don't exactly get what people are talking about. I know you should connect to and work on healing your shadow self, and that shadow work generally means the work you do on your unconscious, your trauma, and the parts of yourself that are dark or negative. And I hear again and again that the way to get the best results from manifestation or work with spirit guides or anything related to your practice is to do that shadow work. But no one ever explains exactly what you do. Is shadow work things like seeing a therapist, reading books related to your specific mental health issues or trauma or other psychological work? Or is it using tools like tarot or automatic writing to learn more about yourself and your issues? Or is it some sort of meditation practice or spell work? It seems like now, during what Zadie Smith called our global humbling, it would be a good time to do that work. I'm just not sure where to start. Or if I'm already doing it and just didn't know to call it that. So what is shadow work? Thanks for your amazing podcast and the light you shine on so many wonderful artists and witches. Well, thank you, Mary Elizabeth, for this question. And my answer to you is yes. <laughs> Any or all of that. To me, shadow work is about choosing to not turn away from inner and outer darkness. So celebrating the fall and the winter is part of what I might call outer or seasonal or natural shadow work. But inner shadow work is about connecting to the parts of ourselves that we were taught to hide or be ashamed of or run away from. And this can be as heavy or light as you are ready for. So it can be looking at the parts of ourselves that are in pain and taking the time to understand and honor that pain. Yes, therapy can be shadow work, especially if you are working with a therapist around trauma or any sort of pain that you might be in. Journaling can be shadow work. So you can write a letter to your shadow or put words down to allow yourself the expression of anger or jealousy or sadness or terror or all those emotional demons that we're taught to keep bottled up. And sure, yes, meditation where we actively work to look at and hold our shadow instead of only focusing on the light, that can also be shadow work. From a more magical perspective, cultivating a relationship with a dark goddess or god can also be shadow work. Hecate, the Greek goddess of witchcraft, is at the center of my altar, and she isn't the gentlest, most light and lovely goddess. She can be intense because she's a goddess of the crossroads and the borderlands and she has the ability to travel in and out of the underworld and take us to places that we might not always be in the mood to see. But she doesn't do this to punish. 
She does this to illuminate because Hecate is also a torchbearer. One of her epithets is Hecate Phosphorus or Hecate the Light Bearer. But she is just one of many, many dark deities whom you might feel called to work with. To me, shadow work is deeply related to descent, to excavation. It's about spelunking through ourselves and our consciousness, and that takes bravery because we don't always know what we're going to be confronted with. But it's a means of growing, and it can certainly be a means of healing. Because guess what? The shadow is always there, and it wants to be known and honored, even if that feels uncomfortable or scary. But when we ignore it, that's when we get into the real trouble, because it can haunt us and seep out of us in other ways and can cause us to harm ourselves and others. Now, Mary Elizabeth, I'm guessing this may not be the most satisfying answer, but there is never a one-size-fits-all to, well, anything really, but certainly not to magic and definitely not to shadow work. So I would suggest you do a bit of reading and research about it, or just diving into whichever of these methods resonates with you. You just want to be careful not to get obsessed with or subsumed by your shadow. If you're dealing with what feels like real trauma or mental health instability of any kind, do seek out a professional to help you. But I think shadow work is a form of alchemy because you are not only regarding the dark parts of yourself or of life, you are doing this so you can learn and transform into a more responsible, more empathetic, more self-compassionate witch. And that, my friend, is how we can all be light bearers. Now, on to my guest. I first fell in love with the work of Camille Rose Garcia when I was in college and saw some of her pop surrealist paintings in my favorite so-called lowbrow art magazine, Juxtapose. She describes her work as depicting wasteland fairy tales, as her world is populated by witches and mermaids and shimmering girls and monstrous women, all painted in the acidic hues of a melting rainbow. But look closer, and you'll see that these works also act as, in her words, critical commentaries on the failures of capitalist utopias. I think of Camille as a liminal being herself, because even though she came up in the lowbrow scene, her work is now also included in more highbrow collections, such as the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Resnick Collection, and the San Jose Museum of Art, which held a retrospective of her work entitled Tragic Kingdom, and which was accompanied by a catalog of the same name. 
She's also a hugely accomplished illustrator who has put her own visual spin on such classics as Snow White and Cinderella, and her book, The Illustrated Alice in Wonderland, published by HarperCollins, was a New York Times bestseller. Camille's latest book, The Cabinet of Dr. Decay, is her own original fairy tale, which came out recently from Sympathetic Press. Camille currently lives in the woods of the Pacific Northwest. Now, before you listen to our conversation, a couple quick notes. The first is, yes, I am still recording from home, of course, as are almost all of my guests, so sound quality is as good as we can get it under these circumstances. And there's also a content warning. In the third segment of our conversation, so after the second commercial break, Camille recounts an experience that she had of extremely unpleasant dental surgery. And this harrowing tale gives context for her book, The Cabinet of Dr. Decay. But if you're someone who is sensitive or squeamish to such content, you may want to skip that part. Camille joined me from her wilderness home in Northern California via Zoom. Camille Rose Garcia, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Are you kidding me? I am so thrilled to have you on the show. I've been a fan of yours and your artwork for many, many, many years now. Not that either of us is that old, but you know. <laughs> I guess I've been doing it a while. It's weird to look back and see how much time has gone by, but yeah, thank you for that. I, and I am many, many years old now, so... <laughs> Older and wiser. <laughs> Let's pretend we're each 612 years old for the sake of the interview. Oh, yes. I like that. That's a good number. We'll get our crone on. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Exactly. But I first want to check in because when you and I were scheduling this show, we were both really excited to do it. And you said you definitely wanted to be on with the caveat that you might be evacuated because of the wildfires that are happening. So first of all, how are you? How is your work? Are you safe? Are you okay? Thank you for asking. That's really kind. I am safe. The house is safe. The studio is safe. The work is safe, which is great because there was a day there when I thought I was going to lose everything. We just didn't know. As you know, probably you've been watching these California wildfires happen all over the state and then Oregon and also Washington. And I live northern, northern California in the middle of a national forest. It's like a little town that's sort of grandfathered in. So I'm surrounded by forest. I'm about 20 minutes from the coast, which is good. My mom lives on the coast there and I was able to evacuate to her house with my husband and my two dogs and really just like my laptop and hard drive and a few paintings that my husband put in the trunk. We didn't know if that was all we were going to be able to take. So mm. luckily for us, the wind shifted and the fire didn't come closer and they've been able to hold it off. But it was kind of a wake up call because... 
I love living in the woods of California. I'm very near the giant redwood forest up here. And I can't really imagine at this point not living in the woods. So you kind of have to figure out how you're going to deal with that kind of uncertainty or inevitability. I don't know. Mm, mm. And it's just like a sort of radical acceptance of the temporality of everything, I guess, even the paintings, which is usually what I believe to be the thing that will live long past my lifetime. But if I didn't protect them or save them, then they would be gone. And, you know, it's uncomfortable to think about that. Like, Absolutely. And especially because when I think of your work, yes, it looks lovely on screen and on, you know, reproduced on paper for sure. But your work really is glittery and textured and there's so much more to it in person. I think that's probably true of everybody's artwork, but yours especially, like so much would be lost if the physical objects weren't around. Yeah. And actually that kind of thought of that is in a way why I like very much doing books and making books because those go out thousands of them or hundreds of them if you do a small run but they go out everywhere to people there's more than just the one people can live with the books live with the art live with the story if it's a story and the paintings are so much more like they exist at a gallery show for just a moment, just for like a month. And then, you know, they're either put in other people's collections or they come back to me and no one ever sees them again. So I do really, really like, you know, making prints and books, things that sort of can live with other people rather than just having this one moment with the painting, even though it is very special to see artwork in person. Absolutely. But I like to be able to do both, you know? Absolutely. And you are so gifted at both. Well, first of all, I am so glad that you are safe and that your work is safe. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. I know that we're recording under this crazy time. I mean, I don't have to recount (laughs) all the insane things that are happening right now. I've been trying to keep a diary and it's like, oh, I fall three days behind and like 20 things happen. I know. It's really insane. And for future listeners, we're recording this on September 21st. And I didn't used to even say the date of recording, but just things are evolving so quickly. Like who knows by the time this gets out, what will have changed? I mean, we just lost RBG. I know you're battling wildfires. And of course, the year that we're having with COVID and police brutality, it goes on and on and on. But I want to actually use that as a jumping off point because You said something really, really beautiful. This was in the write-up for your show. I believe it was for Phantasmacabra or Phantasmacab, which is such a wonderful name. (laughs) And you have this quote, you say, At times I feel a certain helplessness about the state of the world, and I retreat into beauty, into color, into music. And I just love that quote so much. And I wanted to ask you to expand on that quote because you said it a few years ago. 
does that still ring true for you with all the horrors that we've been experiencing, especially within the last six months? Yeah, I'm having such a feeling of synchronicity right now because I think I was just writing something to that effect that, yeah, it applies more than ever this year because I haven't been able to travel. But by retreating into the studio, I feel like I have the ability to travel anywhere in the universe and I have the ability to express a beauty and a resonance and an awe that might not exist in our culture right now, or we might not be seeing it, I guess, is a better way to put it. So yeah, when I go into the studio, and again, intentionally putting the studio in the middle of a forest, in the middle of an ecosystem that's intact because it's a preserved area, it's the Six Rivers National Forest. So intentionally putting the studio there. And then basically when I go through the studio doors, I kind of portal out and I go more internal. And by going internal, what kind of happens is I'm able to kind of access like a timeless, spaceless state, I guess that you would call the collective unconscious. But basically it gives me immense peace of mind to be able to connect and communicate with that. And maybe that's the language of nature that I'm trying to communicate with because it is like, okay, like, especially this year, there's been so many layers of problems and breakdowns and collapsing in of the structures of the modern world that will probably continue. But to know that there's another way that humans used to exist in nature and used to live in nature that was a little bit more harmonious and still contained, you know, it's not like there was no stress or sadness or anything like that, but maybe it was more imbued with meaning. And right now I feel like there's kind of a crisis of meaning. Like, what are we all doing? (laughs) You know? Yes, I do. I do. So you have been able to even create work during this time because I know a lot of creative folks who have felt stopped up and understandably so. So this, I think, shouldn't put pressure on any listeners who have felt creatively dry or stuck or paralyzed. No judgment, but it sounds like that hasn't been an issue for you. Well, I haven't really completed much this year. (laughs) I'll just put that out there. But, you know, I do have a daily habit. I wake up, I write, I go in the studio, I put on certain music that sort of reflects the vibe. I sort of express gratitude. I do this whole thing and then I get to work and, you know, I do a web store and I sell prints and sometimes that work is just like, oh, I'm printing out shipping things and putting them in the box and doing that like really basic Mm -hmm. non-creative work. And I feel like the creative work this year has been scattered and piecemeal. And I'm just starting to finally start a series of new paintings. I have the ideas for them, but you know, I have not, I've started little things, but I haven't completed anything this year because I think a lot of days have been taken up with the idea of just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your work. I always find it a really 
interesting challenge when I have visual artists on the show because I want people who might not be familiar with your work, of course, to just go and Google the shit out of you and fall in love with you as I have. (laughs) But I would love to try to give listeners a sense of your visual world. So can you describe what your work looks like? And that can be as broad or as specific (laughs) as you feel called to describe. You know, it kind of started out as like surrealist, cartoony, maybe old vintage cartoon inspired, but now it's more like layers of a forest have been layered on top of that substrate. Mm. And then there is another layer of a language of symbolism that is pulled from fairy tales and cartoons that kind of come from like maybe a Walt Disney vibe. Mm-hmm. And then there's just like a shit ton of color and glitter. <laughs> just <laughs> basically all the colors. Use all the glitters. Ah, uh, it's it's the best. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote down the phrase vibrant viscosity. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Because you do have this very, and I say this with like the utmost respect and love. Sure. A very like black light, lava lamp, psychedelia kind of vibe. Yeah. 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 I'm glad that doesn't turn you off because I'm such a fan of that. Oh, me too. You know, in my teen years, my boyfriend was in a band and a couple bands and music was a big part of it. And I would do like flyers for the bands. And I've always played music as well. So part of my touchstone is really that sort of like, psychedelic band posters and punk rock posters and things like that. So I remember going to grad school and like everything I liked was like, no, you're not supposed to. No, you can't do that. There were all these sort of rules against like everything that I was into. So it took a while to kind of like get the grad school out of me and pull those things back that I loved. But yeah, I love horror. I love kitsch. I love psychedelia for sure. The way I use color too is very specifically to generate certain vibes, I guess. Ooh, can you expand on that, Camille? Basically, like starting a painting in a way, and I really just realized this in the past couple of years, is like doing a spell or doing a, a recipe. Like if you're cooking, you know, all the colors really carry a lot of symbolic meaning. Like since I moved to the woods, I've been doing paintings in the sort of blues and green hues because I want to make people feel sort of calm and relaxed when they're looking at the painting. So they're stepping into a world that is vibing that. But then you throw in something like hot pink or red and those are much more on your eye. They sort of resonate as like a warning signal. or So So they're more, more excitable. So you'll use like a little bit of that to pull the eye towards a certain area of what you want to emphasize in the painting. So by using color, you can direct somebody's perception and you can exactly make them feel kind of how you want them to feel. Absolutely. I want to hear about how you unlearned your grad school rules (laughs) because you know, one of the things that I'm so attracted to in your work is that it's very feminine 
certainly your content, and we'll dive deeper on your content a little later, but you have goddesses and witches and mermaids and (laughs) all these incredible fairy tale ingenues, albeit through this warped psychedelic lens. And all of that, you know, your colors, your style, your subject matter, to me, doesn't feel like something that maybe you got the green light to do in grad school. So how did you give yourself permission to really just like unfurl your wings and let yourself find your visual voice to mix metaphors? No. And I think still in grad school, they're sort of teaching this lineage that comes from Europe. It's filtered through abstract expressionism in New York and conceptualism and minimalism and the male gaze. And it was really only maybe five years ago that I even discovered Leonora Carrington. And I saw this great show in Los Angeles in Wonderland. And it was all these Mexican women surrealists. And I was so angry because I realized this whole lineage of female surrealist painters or painting from intuition or visionary painters, Hilma Ofklint also is one of them. It has been completely left out of the teaching in art school. And it's a crime because it explains to me where I am in relationship to those people. And it makes my lineage make sense. So I think, you know, my mother was an artist. My dad was a filmmaker. My mom took us to museums all the time. I was exposed to a lot of art, a lot of books, a lot of film. So I kind of had, I think, a sense of myself before I went into art school. And then basically things that I liked that I would try to express in art school, they weren't part of their program, really, which was like the underground and punk rock and zines and horror movies and cartoons and kitsch and all this stuff. And they just didn't have a language for it. They didn't have a language to talk about anything that came from pop culture or that was in any way illustration-based. When I got out of grad school, I actually didn't want to make art anymore. I didn't see a place for me. I didn't see a place in galleries or you know how you're supposed to go about and get shows. It just didn't resonate anymore. So I actually... I just wanted to be in a band. So I was in this girl band for a couple of years in the 90s, right after grad school. What were you guys called? We were called The Real Minx. And actually, our first recordings are going to be released this year with Sympathy for the Record Industry later this year. Like, oh! It was like 20, 20 years later. I know. That's so rad. Congratulations. Really cool. Thank you. Yeah, my guitar player had kept the tapes all these years and we just never put it out. But John, who owns, he's the owner of Sympathy for the Record Industry. He's been a collector of mine for a long time. And he actually published The Cabinet of Dr. Decay. So he's put out a ton of music. He's starting to put out books. Yeah, he's a great dude. But anyway, so back to the band. Yeah, after grad school, I felt like... And I don't know if it's the structure of critiques. You know, people that are in grad school will know what that process is. I don't know if it was that, but it sort of just sucked all the fun out of making art and it turned it strictly into you have to sort of have a reason to do the thing before you do the thing. And for me, being more into more the process of like a visionary artist or outside artist, that kind of made more sense to me in terms of my process. So that didn't leave any room for intuition or exploring realms that you can't explain. 
So it kind of sucked the fun out of it. So yeah, I didn't make art after grad school for a number of years. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, you're talking about a conceptual way of painting, which is you have an idea, you have a concept, you're trying to express it versus not knowing and using your art as the portal for discovery, right? You're you're yes, allowing exactly. yourself to be curious and there's that word again, intuitive. Yes. You prepare the space, you prepare your canvas, or in my case, I paint on wood panels. You go in the studio and you sit with them and they tell you what they want to be. And that's usually how I will work I will do a lot of writing ahead of time, but not necessarily like exact descriptions of a painting or even a really tight pre-sketch. It will be more of like symbolically, or this is how I want it to feel, or this is the concept that I would like to explore, maybe these colors or maybe these settings, forest or ocean or under the water or something. So, but I will sit there with the panels, blank panels, And they will tell me what they want to be. Now, granted, I give them a lot of help. (laughs) So I do select a soundtrack when I portal out in the studio pertaining to kind of the vibe of what I want the show to be. So the show I'm working on that I'm starting now, it's called Obsidian Butterfly. And it's that name is from Octavio Paz's poem. Mm. His writing is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. So that sets it up. And then I've been listening to Chelsea Wolf, her new album. I've been listening to a lot of Nico. So a lot of sort of female singer songwriters that are kind of like touching into some kind of ancient language, I guess. Ah, oh, I'm swooning <laughs> over here. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> that sounds so incredible. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp, an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which, let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days, I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, Witchwave listeners, that's you, get 
10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy. I certainly have myself, and I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. So please pop over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Camille Rose Garcia. So Camille, you are so generous in sharing some of your process. I know some artists are kind of secretive about how they get work done, and I love that you're peeling back the curtain a little bit on this. I also want to talk to you about the content I know that with each set of paintings or books you're working on, you have different themes, but there does seem to be a kind of universal symbolic well that you're drawing from. And to me, this well holds fairy tales and myths and beasts and ghosts and witches and mermaids. (laughs) And I mean, it's all my favorite stuff, which is why I'm so crazy about you. Where does that come from for you? Where does that fascination in, I guess I'll call it the dark feminine, come from in your own development? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. Because, yeah, it it has been in the more recent work from since moving to the woods where the feminine characters have sort of grown up a little bit and kind of grabbed a little bit more power. Where in the earlier work, it was sort of younger, cuter. And... I like exploring this idea of the dark feminine, of doing shadow work, of this idea of a very, very strong, maybe even a little bit scary, like a Kali figure. Or we were talking earlier about PJ Harvey. There's a song on one of her albums where she's like, flooding like because of her rage over what happened with Nick Cave you know I mean Mm -hmm. I think that's what the song's about (laughs) she's like flooding this valley with water and you know she's just like creating a ruin to whatever existed before like a female rage so I think it's like I like to sort of explore especially now how maybe a feminine energy that has been degraded, misunderstood, and repressed, how it takes its world back, how it forces people to reckon with the power of nature and that we need to listen and respect that power. There's always been this feminine vibe, but the newer ones I think are going to be exploring almost a rage and a power that cannot be suppressed anymore you know Uh, and this kind of ties back into fairy tales and authors of fairy tales some of that I've illustrated and I was getting frustrated that they were always written by men and realizing that you know women in the past did not have as many options for like being a writer or being an artist or being a musician so the women that have done that and taken that power back and now I'm able to do it you're able to do it 
like a tremendous respect to what those women had to fight against to put their work out there and make it survive. Absolutely. I think that is so true. And, you know, hopefully younger generations won't have to fight as hard as, you know, you and I are roughly of the same generation. And and hopefully we don't have to fight as hard as our mothers and so on and so forth. But I completely relate to everything you're saying about that feminine rage and the beauty of it too, the absolute beauty. You have another quote again from the Phantasma Cobb show. You said, I'm interesting in the feeling of something beautiful and frightening existing at the same time, something painful and pleasurable all at once. And that points to this idea of non-duality, right? That is in pretty much every spiritual path and and religion when you get to the root of them. When did you start getting interested in that non-duality or maybe celebrating duality together, if that makes sense? It's an interesting question, and I don't know that I can exactly pinpoint it, but I think culturally, so my dad was Mexican and Yaqui Indian, and I was raised in Orange County, California, which is like very white. So I was raised pretty much in like white Christian culture in the suburbs, but in my soul, like I am like Mexican to the core of my soul, which Mm. in that culture, they are able to express that duality very beautifully. So death and life coexist and walk together. You know, they're very ghosts and spirits. It's not a big deal that they're hanging around. It's not a fear, I think, of the other realms and the other worlds. Beauty and pain exist together. They express it so perfectly. And I think because it's expressed that way, there's less fear of the other. So like in our culture, there's a lot of fear of death, obviously. I mean, everyone, that's like a natural thing to fear, but it's also hidden away. You know, we hide the old people away. It's uncomfortable for people to sort of think about being old and maybe not being as able or having to have somebody help you, these kinds of things. But, you know, it's really all on that kind of a circle of a spectrum of the cycle of life. And I think like living in the woods and being close to nature, that cycle is happening every year. And I see it so plainly that I think it's just become more comfortable for me to express everything all at once because that's how nature does it. (laughs) Absolutely. So the woods keep coming up for you. It obviously seems like a very sacred place for you. When did you move out there? What called you to leave suburbia or leave? Were you living in LA before that? Yeah, I was living in Los Angeles, which I was born in LA and lived there most of my life. But, you know, the area I live now is actually my mom's childhood home. My grandparents, they lived in LA and in the 50s, they decided to get out like back to the land. So they moved up here and they homesteaded and my grandpa built a cabin up here and we would come every summer. So my life was like half suburbs of Los Angeles. And then in the summer, we'd come up to the woods and like, you know, all us kids would just play in the river, explore. So it was there was always that duality of like, okay, the suburbs, this is like civilization and it's awful. And then we go to the woods and this is the wilderness and it's amazing. 
So I've always kind of had that feeling that, you know, it would be great to live in the woods and to live amongst nature and be immersed in it instead of just visiting it sporadically on a camping trip. And honestly, we moved here in 2007. And part of my thinking was, you know, I don't know how much longer like pure nature is going to be around. So I want to just live in it Mm. and know what that's like before it's gone was my thought, you know? Absolutely. And did you feel a big shift in your work once you got into the woods? Yes. Oh my God. Huge. And that's when it got more colorful and psychedelic. Honestly, the work that I did in LA was much more focused on because all of the work is about, you know, nature and modern culture and the uncomfortable intersections we have between those two things. So, you know, pollution, industry and capitalism and how do we reconcile our economic systems with also preserving our natural environment. Like, why is this so hard to figure out? So that theme has always been there. But in LA, it was much more like the colors were dingy or yellower. There were factories. I would say maybe a little like more depressing. (laughs) And then moving up here, even though at first glance, it just seems like everything's green, because I started looking intensely at everything. So you see like, oh, that lichen is like electric green and this other thing is fuchsia. I felt like I started seeing colors differently. And I wanted to express not only like, here's everything wrong with culture, but now I would like to express, here's everything right with nature. So that became more layered and became more of the dominant, I guess, vibe, you know, was like, okay, what if I paint flowers and ferns and insects and butterflies? Does that still make me edgy? I guess was the question. (laughs) Well, I think you've definitely not lost your edge. (laughs) Okay, good. So don't worry about that. And I just find your work to be so endlessly spellbinding and intriguing. I mean, there's always so much detail and so much to look at and get lost in. Oh, but it's you. it's complicated. Your work is complicated because, you know, I, I certainly sense your love of the cartoon. And, and you grew up near Disneyland, right? And you yeah. mentioned Disney before. So it feels like that's a big influence as well. I was thinking a lot about Mary Blair when I was looking through oh, your love work. Her. I grew up near Disneyland and we, they used to have a thing where if you were local, you could go after like 3 p.m. for, it was like $10 or something. I don't remember, but it was not a lot. So we would go every weekend. And I was obsessed with animation at that time. I was obsessed with Max Fleischer, with Felix the Cat, with Bugs Bunny. And I realized like after kind of growing up and really working on fairy tales and exploring fairy tales that what a lot of those cartoons did is they were just sort of reinterpreting fairy tales and then presenting them again. So the cartoony kind of vibe was always kind of like a nod to like animation culture, which I've always loved, the early vintage animation culture. Yes, me too. Yeah, there's something to that. And then this is a really interesting question because at some point when I sort of transitioned into depicting the females in a different way, like an older, I had this kind of question, like how realistic am I going to paint with this? Hmm. So a stylistic choice of like advancing that beyond 
a linear two-dimensional into something a little more like literally fleshed out, you know? Yeah. I go back and forth a little bit, you know? Absolutely. But I, I find that tension between that like flat animated style and then just like the rich, I don't know, I get a real sense of vibration to bring that word up again and a oh, real cool. spirit that comes through your work too. And you know, I always love when different elements are in tension with each other. Yeah. I just find it delicious. I think that's where the real alchemy comes from. That's cool. That's all. Yeah. The alchemy, it, like working on them too, they get to a point. And this I learned from my mom, who was a painter, and I worked with her on murals and stuff when I was younger. But, you know, the first few layers of paint, you're just kind of getting something on there and it's not supposed to be beautiful and amazing. So I never freak out about like the first three to four layers of paint. So I work in a lot of transparent layers and there's always a point, maybe like 10 layers in or something where it starts to have a life of its own Mm. and it will kind of call me like I work a lot at night. So, you know, if I have one going, that's like really, I'm really in it. I'll work after dinner and go back out there. It's sort of calling to me, you know, And honestly, like they just at some point seem like different entities. Like I don't know that I made them as much as I just sort of like captured their essence out of whatever I was looking at or thinking about. And in a way, I guess this gets back to the kind of cartoony mixed with like realism. In a way, I'm always kind of trying to capture like a dream or a memory. So my dreams are kind of filled with mixed. Some things are more flat or cartoony and some things are more realistic and they just sort of evolve. And at some point they become like their own beings. And that's the funnest part because then I can kind of like show up and be involved or like finesse, you know, like, okay, yeah, let's just like micro dial in this vibration here. So when you're talking about vibration, oftentimes, like on a flower, if a flower is, if I'm doing like, let's say a magenta flower, and I want your eyes to kind of vibrate when you're looking at it, I'll do an outline in the opposite color Mm. and on a certain tone that will make it kind of vibrate and make it maybe a little hard to look at. Sometimes looking at them, they can be jumpy a little bit. Ah, I love that. They feel (laughs) so alive. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Camille Rose Garcia. So we were talking about your fine artwork primarily. You're also a very gifted illustrator 
and you have illustrated some of the most iconic fairy tales of all time. You've done <laughs> illustrations for Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Snow White, and Cinderella. And now you have both written and illustrated your own <laughs> kind of fairy tale, if you will. I consider it a fairy tale. Uh, this is called the Cabinet of Dr. Decay. So let's start with those first three fairy tales. How did you come to illustrate those projects and how did you tackle such iconic imagery and put your own personal spin on that? Was that intimidating, fun, oh, or both? Yeah, it was very intimidating. So I was approached by HarperCollins to illustrate Alice in Wonderland. And my first thought was hell to the no, um, because the Tenniel illustrations are so amazing. They're so iconic. There's no way I'm going to be able to like do any better than he did. So why even try? <laughs> and then, you know, I thought I was like, no, it'll be cool. This will be a challenge, Camille. Like, you should do it. So I agreed to do it. And their deadlines were completely insane but you know they're a big company so I had to kind of stick to it so what I did was I was like okay well let's see what other people have done with Alice in Wonderland and you know it's so many people have done it in a variety of beautiful ways but I kept going back to the original Tenniel black and white illustrations because those are the ones I remember as a kid I poured over those illustrations so in a way I wanted to do an homage to his work so if you look at a lot of the compositions of the illustrations that I did in the book, they are kind of directly referencing his work. And there was only one scene that he didn't illustrate that I ended up illustrating, which was the lobster quadrille, which is this weird dance where they're like throwing lobsters into the sea and dancing with turtles. So that was really fun to be able to illustrate that because I didn't have a preconceived idea of what he would have done with it, you know? Absolutely. But the character design. It was tricky because I also wanted to to be able to look at the characters and say, oh, yeah, that's Alice in Wonderland. So that iconic kind of dress and she has a little headband and she's blonde. There were certain things I wanted to keep that you could instantly recognize it. I think the struggle was just kind of trying to strike the right tone with the characters. So once I had those kind of figured out and then I was using the Tenniel sort of compositions is a little bit of a guide <laughs> that you have like, I don't know, it was like a month maybe to do line drawings and then you send them to be approved. And this is probably almost a hundred illustrations. Oh my and then once God. they're approved, I know I was like insane. Once they're approved, you have like another maybe six weeks to do them. <laughs> that so. Whoa. You said a short deadline. I thought it was going to be six months, which I consider very short for something like this. It is. I'm sweating profusely. I just want you to know. Like, I feel just, triggered. <laughs> I feel triggered, no, I know. Camille. <laughs> it's making me sweaty, too, thinking back on it. If those illustrations look in any way insane, it's because I was at the time insane. Just sleep deprived. Yeah. Just like, oh my God, these are all due to there. I remember one point it was like, I'd have 14 more done by the next day. Now, granted, like for that kind of work that's illustration in that many, I do a little bit of a streamlined process where like I ink everything first in black and then I go back through and lay in the watercolor. So that way I can make sure it matched like same color if it's the same kind of a scene or something. 
So yeah, I have like 14, <laughs> 20 by 10 illustrations laying on the desk at the same time, just like cranking like Black Sabbath at like two in the morning and drinking tequila and just like getting the watercolor on, just get it on there. <laughs> so. I love it. By the end of yeah. it, you're hallucinating that your tequila says, drink me on it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's definitely hallucinations at some point. So after that, when I was like, oh, my God, I'm never doing this again. That's a nightmare. And then, of course, they're like, hey, do you want to do Snow White? <laughs> I was like, OK. But, you know, I think with books and, you know, you're a writer, we have short memories. So during the time when you're like, why did I say I would do this by this time? I'm insane. I hate this. I'm never doing this again. Like after it's all done, after about six months, you've kind of forgotten how horrible it is. And also, hopefully the work lasts so much longer than that pain. So, I mean, I know it really does for between like the labor of (laughs) a child, you know, of having a child and I'm not a mother, so I can't talk about that. But I know a lot of people who say like, you forget how bad the labor is. And that's yeah, why you will have another child after your first one. Otherwise, you'd be so traumatized uh, that yeah. the human race would cease to exist. Yeah. And I think making books is very similar or paintings. So, you know, then I was like, oh, well, Snow White. That's like my, I love that. I love Snow White. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it was like the same deadlines. And then the editor that I was working with, she had her own little baggage of insane ideas, which was like, you know, she'd want like a wedding scene at the end with like a hundred characters. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not that person. I'm not like a Where's Waldo kind of artist, you know? Yeah. So I'd have to sort of like temper back like a little of the expectation. So that one, yeah, it was the same thing, like never again. And then she was like, well, I'd like to do a trilogy because, you know, then we could package them as a three thing. And so the next one, she wanted me to do Cinderella. And that one I was almost vehemently against based on just that particular fairy tale, because I don't really like princess tales. I don't like when they're saved by a prince and then they get married and then everything's fine. Like to me, that doesn't resonate with anything. (laughs) I like when there's a witch or a villain, but I didn't want to do it, but they dangled. They're like, well, you can do Peter Pan after that. I was like, well, okay, well, I really want to do Peter Pan. So I'll do Cinderella. Even though you weren't that psyched on Cinderella. Did you find any of it enjoyable? Were you able to make it resonate for yourself or was that just kind of a job? My whole point with Cinderella was to kind of subvert the story through the illustrations, which I was able to do only because HarperCollins was like moving their offices during this time. And I don't think they really like looked closely at anything (laughs) because I gave Cinderella like black and purple hair and they didn't say anything about that. That's so awesome. I know. Like I snuck one through. And so there's weird little like subversive things in the illustrations in that book, you know, if I'm working on, you know, a short fairy tale like that for, you know, whatever, four months or something, you know, I'm kind of microanalyzing the meaning behind it so that I can have something to chew on. And I realized the whole thing with the clock ticking towards midnight was this whole sort of expiration date on feminine beauty. Mm -hmm. And that for the sisters, 
the ugly sisters, they were fun to draw because, you know, I love, I love a villain, but for the ugly sisters, like they were already past their experience. They were too far gone. Like their feet were too fat already. You know, I kind of hated that aspect of it, but I also found it interesting to work with that of like, okay, this was written by a man. This was from the perspective of a man. And basically it's like a rags to riches story, but there was not a lot of personal power for Cinderella there. It was, you know, she had a witch helping her and then she had this prince like save her. So after that, you know, I really thought about it. And I was like, you know, a lot of like little girls come and have me sign that book when I do signings and they love those stories. But I thought, you know, I would like to write my own fairy tale because all of these fairy tales are written by men. So I would want there to be an example of one written by a woman that's also maybe illustrated because I can do both of those things. <laughs> of course, yes. I mean, you know, I'm not like a super experienced writer, but I really enjoy the process of writing. I write for all my paintings. I write a lot in an informal way. So I thought it came time and I had the opportunity to do Dr. DK. I was like, yeah, of course. That's exactly what I want to do. So let's jump into the cabinet of Dr. Decay. (laughs) All right. First of all, Camille. Yeah. I love this book so much. Oh, thank you. The story is so fabulous. It is bursting with imagination and it's funny and twisted and has a beautiful message and the illustrations are so vivid and whimsical and dark. I just love this book. That means so much to me. You don't even know. I, yeah, I haven't had a lot of feedback because I was going to be promoting it this year and doing book signings. So that it means the world to me that you're saying as a great writer to hear that from you. It's, it's oh, like, really thank you so much. Well, you are a great writer as well. Oh, thank you. thank you. I always struggle with talking about stories because I hate spoilers, <laughs> but I want to tell our listeners enough about the story that they will to go out and fall in love with it as I have. So why don't I actually turn it over to you? What is The Cabinet of Dr. Decay about? Oh, The Cabinet of Dr. Decay. In a way, it's my homage to dystopian fiction that I love. And for instance, Kafka or George Orwell. It's kind of a true story, but it's also an homage to like magical realism and surrealism and that beautiful disjointed quality of Alice in Wonderland. I don't know what style or genre that's called, but I love books. I've collected books for my whole entire life. So in a way, it's a love letter also to books and as real tangible things. So the story, I call it sort of like a dystopian horror tale. And it's this kid wakes up in a hospital and, you know, his hands and his face are missing. And there's a doctor at the hospital that has Dr. Decay, he's got a giant tooth for a head, and he's the one kind of in charge of this kid's um, journey throughout this hospital tale. So it's a little bit metamorphosis, like at the beginning, and then there's a little bit of Frankenstein. But the general message of the book is really about like the battle between preserving a tangible real world of nature and the mystery of 
space and I don't know, like the moon and the stars and the rivers and the things we know and love versus the sort of more modern world that's kind of trying to get rid of all of those things and replace those things with fake things. Oh, beautifully said. (laughs) I also want to let our listeners know that this world is populated by such incredible creatures and characters. (laughs) I am so in love with the cats of the midnight moon. Oh, yeah. They're the best. Yes, they are the best. A secret society of cats who Mm -hmm. end up helping our protagonist, whose name is Alex. Mm -hmm. And these cats are incredible knitters. Ah, they're just incredibly savvy and and brilliant and magical. You have a lobster who's very suave named Sandoval Sandoval. Ramos. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Who I love as well. And of course, you know, Dr. Decay himself, who is really horrifying. And (laughs) you mentioned already that, you know, he has this tooth for a head And there's a lot in the story about Decay and about Dr. Decay trying to preserve his own head in very (laughs) grotesque, hilarious ways. And I understand that this was inspired by some actual dental work that you had to undergo. Is that true? It is very true. And that's why this is actually a true story that happened to me. So I have had terrible teeth my whole life, ever since I was a child. So every visit, you know, they're falling apart and falling apart more. And for many years, I didn't have, or I'd have spotty insurance, depending on, you know, if I had some money and I could get private insurance. Anyway, this had gone on for many years. And finally, it came to the point where I was told that I would have to have basically almost every tooth crowned, like root canaled and then crowned in my Mm. mouth, which is called a full mouth reconstruction. Whoa, Camille. I know. (laughs) And I thought the first person that told me that I was like, well, she's batshit crazy. I'm not listening to her. And then I went to a a specialist down in Beverly Hills. He was like, no, you got to get this done. (sighs) And I was like, how am I going to get this done? Because of course, my number one phobia is the dentist. So yeah. And, And my number two phobia is being put under. (laughs) My brain is weird and I react weirdly to substances, different pills, which is, that's a little smoking gun for the second part of the story. Mm -hmm. I met with a specialist and for some weird reason, right after Alice in Wonderland, like that sold well and I had a little chunk of money. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do it now. So I had this little chunk of money. So I had a team of three specialists. I had the root canal guy, and then I had the gum guy because I have small teeth. So they were like, okay, well, we have to like cut your gums and lift them up to make more room on the crown of the tooth root to put the thing on. So there's the gum guy, the gum surgery guy, then the root canal guy, and then just like the dental specialist who's like the mastermind, right? So basically, I live up in the woods. This doctor is down in LA. So I'd have to fly down. My third biggest fear, flying. So we have three, you know, weird drugs and then flying. So I'd have to fly down there and do like an intensive week and then fly back up here, right? This was one of the last weeks of work. You know, it was like over a period of maybe six months or longer of going down there and doing this work. This week, I had 11 root canals done in one week. And the reason was 
I know, I know, I know this is all true. The reason is because all of the root canals I had previously done weren't done very well and they were infected at the root. So they had to rip all those off. Let me know if this gets too gross because I know. I mean, it's it's pretty gross, (laughs) but, but, you know, be yourself, tell your truth. All right. So they had to rip all those root canals off and re-drill into the root because the roots were infected and then also do the new ones. It was a Friday. The deal was I was supposed to have the two root canals done and those were the last and then go over to the gum guy and have the gum surgery to lift up to make the, I don't even know. But My the teeth gum guy. are right now aching in, with sympathetic magic. I mean, geez. Yeah. So I am laying there at the, the uh, root canal specialist, right? He's doing root canals in my two front teeth. I sit up and what happened was my vision was focused on two different planes because he had numbed the ocular nerve by mistake in my left eye. So it was like, oh my God, I can't see you've ruined my eyes. What's happening? He's like, no, you know, they laugh. That will go away in like an hour. But here, let me give you an eye patch. So I'm like, basically now I'm supposed to go over to the gum surgeon guy. So the gum surgery, I had asked like, can I do this while I'm awake? Because I don't like to be put under. He said, yeah, we'll just give you an anti-anxiety pill. Quote, it's like a Valium. Okay, well, I've taken Valium before. Sure. And it was great. It was fine. I was like, okay, that sounds fine. So the root canal guy administers me the pill, which was not, quote, like a Valium. It was Ativan, which I've never taken. And by the time I got over to the gum specialist guy, I was hallucinating. I thought the whole room was dark, like a nightclub. I um, was laying in the chair and I was like, why are there like 10 different doctors coming in to look at me? It was the same doctor, but I thought it was a different doctor every time. So they luckily figured out that I was having a bad reaction to the Ativan and did not perform the surgery. They made my husband pick me up, but I basically started to have, it's called disassociation, where Mm. your brain starts to kind of separate from your body a little bit. So I was walking around in this body with the eye patch, couldn't see, and my brain was like, I don't know that person, basically. So the whole rest of the day, I was hallucinating. I had amnesia. I was throwing up. I don't remember. My husband got me food. I ate. I don't remember. I was out for like two days. Whoa. Yeah. Jeremy was calling all the doctors. He was like, does she have to go to the emergency room? And they're like, no, she's having an atypical reaction, but it, it should wear off you know, in a few hours. Let me, let me stop you there for a second, because everything you're describing right now, and I'm not being tongue in cheek about this. No. What you're describing is essentially almost like an initiation. Like when I hear about people who undergo some kind of, let's say they do ayahuasca, right? Or even certain cultures where they would have to confront essentially death in order to be reborn or have some message that's coming through for them so that they can emerge and be stronger, have more power and be of service to their community. So that's what this feels like, especially when I think about 
I don't know if you've ever gotten into like dream analysis, but so many people have that nightmare of their teeth falling out. And, right, right. Right. Like it's a very primal fear. You also had to confront all of these different fears. Like this is a series of trials. Yes. Oh my God. I've never heard someone put it that way, but absolutely. Right. Yeah. And you yeah. went, you had to like cross over, you <laughs> went into the underworld essentially, yeah, and then you did. emerged and it was terrifying, but you survived to literally tell the tale. <laughs> tell right? the true story. Yeah. So the best part was this was over the weekend. I was just like out of it. And they said, okay, well, you know, you still have to get the surgery. Do you want to come in Monday and have it done? So I still had to go in again, <sighs> another trial and have the gum surgery done. But I was like, I don't want any crazy pill. <laughs> I want to get put under, but can I listen to my headphones? And they said, yes. Yeah. So I got through the fucking four hours of gum surgery with uh, Bon Iver's first record <laughs> on repeat. And that's how I did that. But yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Camille. Well, yeah. first of all, I hope your teeth are fucking better now. God. <laughs> They're all right. I still need to get my wisdom teeth out, but I just haven't. Literally, I haven't been back to the dentist since they gave me that pill. I mean, for cleaning, but not. I won't let them like do anything else. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy. Get, getting back to the book, though, yeah, yeah. that really does give this a whole extra layer because not only is it a wonderful story, but you've taken something really terrifying and painful and you've transmuted it into something quite beautiful and masterful. And so oh, thank you. I wish your teeth were 100% better, but <laughs> <laughs> at least we have this gorgeous book. And you know what I wanted to ask you, and yeah. we're coming up on time. So I'm almost afraid to ask you this big, juicy question. Oh, I love a big, but juicy I'm doing question. it anyway. Do it. You know, so many of your paintings feel very feminine. But almost every character in this book reads masculine to me. And I just wondered, was that a conscious choice on your part? And, you know, what you might think about that? You know, it was kind of completely unconscious. There was just one little sentence someone told me maybe 12 years ago. I had written another book called The Magic Bottle and that had a female protagonist. And I was trying to get it animated. I was trying to like sell it or work on it as an animation. And my friend who was working animation, he was like, well, you know, it's harder to sell a story with a female protagonist than like a male protagonist. And I was like, that's dumb and weird. But so that kind of stuck with me in this one where I was like, okay, I'm going to make Alex the boy. But the other characters, I didn't think of them as having like the cat's I don't know that they're male or female. Like I think Alabaster is maybe female because mm. so I thought a little bit about like just that decision, like I'm going to make this character a boy, but maybe it was also a way of not having it be so personal where if I had made it a girl, it would have been really like an autobiography. Mm. <laughs> like mm. I would have been the little girl. And you know what? Actually, it is a juicy question and also an uncomfortable question if you talk about like a little girl with a sort of male oppressor or villain. I think that's a little too close to the bone. It couldn't be that dynamic with the male doctor and then a little girl. You know yeah. what I mean? 
Yes, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. It also yeah. makes me think of Jung and the concepts of like the anima and the animus. Yes. And I know you're a big Jung fan. so Definitely. And that all the characters are aspects of my psyche is really what it is. Yeah. And it feels like your animus being expressed, maybe. For sure. Good question. Juicy. <laughs> <laughs> I have like 98 more questions written down that I'm afraid we don't have time for today. I really hope you'll come back because I have so loved speaking with you, Camille. Oh, I would love to, yeah. Before you go, I am certain that listeners are going to want to dive into your world. Where can they find out all about you and your work? You can go to my website, which is camillerosegarcia.com. And there's a link there for like, if you want to go to the store and get like prints or stuff. My Instagram is at CRG Studios. And that's where I usually post the newest stuff I'm doing. And I don't do Twitter because that shit will make me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So you You can reach me by snail mail. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. And do I understand that Dr. Decay is being made into a film perhaps? The original treatment I wrote, it was a treatment for a stop motion film and I designed it to be like a stop motion film. So I was kind of working on them concurrently and I'm working with this brilliant stop motion animator, Martin Mounier. He's in Los Angeles and uh, he worked on Coraline and Mm. James the Giant Peach. Ah, fabulous. But I can't really afford him (laughs) more than what I've done, which is just some pre-production. So I do have to kind of team up with somebody who has deep pockets to make this. But I did pitch it to Netflix and they were like, it's a little, it's a little weird. They didn't tell me that, but I know that's what they were like. How do we market this? So well, hey, listen, we have a <laughs> lot of interesting people who listen to the show. So oh. hey, if you're listening and you are intrigued by this story, yeah, reach yeah. out to Camille because I would love to see an animated version of this. I think it would be, ugh. I know. And that's like my childhood dream. So it would just be like fulfilled and then the world could end and I'd be cool. It's just like, just let me make this film and then it can be done. Exactly. <laughs> well, you have spoken it aloud. So mote it be. And in the meantime, We have this incredible book, everyone. I really encourage you to pick up The Cabinet of Dr. Decay. It's beautiful. It has an incredible message about preservation of the natural world. There's a lot of just uh, gorgeous imagery both to look at and to ingest through Camille, your beautiful language. So um, I'm just such a fan. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's really been a good time. It's been an absolute honor, Camille, and let's do it again. For sure. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Camille Rose Garcia for her colorful creations and warped wonder. And if you want more from Camille, we talk in even more depth about her own magical practice on the next mini-sode for Patreon backers, which will be dropping next Wednesday. So be sure to give that a listen, too. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. 
The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and it helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please do consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please do join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs> <laughs>